I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There are loads and loads of reasons why women would say things like, yeah, it really does hurt, but at the end of the day, I don't want to create a storm in a teacup or I don't want to rock the boat, or I would rather just fit in um, because the alternative is to F off, you know, and that, that last one I heard time and time and time again. So modifying one's own behaviour in order to fit in with the, the culture, that's where that becomes problematic. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant. Hello, Em. Hey, Shell. I'm Emily Bowen, and I work for a business called Foresight's Recruitment and HR. On the show today, we are discussing sexual harassment, sexual assault, and sex discrimination in the workplace. And we're privileged to have Dr. Sky Saunders joining us for this really important conversation. Up front, I want to say that this episode may be triggering for survivors of assault. And if you need support, please contact 1-800-RESPECT, the National Sexual Assault, Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service. A bit of background about Sky before we jump in to this conversation. Dr. Sky Saunders is an Associate Professor in the School of Law at the University of New England, and she's recognised as an expert in the field of sex discrimination law. Sky has been researching and consulting on issues of workplace sexual harassment for more than a decade. She also practices law as a special counsel on sex discrimination matters. Her work that we'll be discussing today is Whispers from the Bush, the workplace sexual harassment of Australian rural women. So we're going to deep dive into some of that and there are some confronting stories that we will unpack, but it helps to paint the picture of this complex issue of sexual harassment in both rural and metropolitan workplaces. Before we get into today's episode, Shell, are you sick of the same old, same old? Yeah, Em, I'm always up for a change. Well, experience banking with a difference that gives back to local communities. That's not bad. Head over to newcastlepermanent.com.au and find out how we're here for good. Hi, Sky. It's great to have you hanging out with us on the show today. Oh, thank you, Shell. It's so good to be with you. We really appreciate you taking the time. And Shelley and I have been looking forward to this episode for a while now. Um, we were so pleased when you were kind enough to come and share your expertise. And I know I'm going to learn a lot and I know I'm not going to be the only one. So to echo that again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Em. So today, Sky, we are going to pick your brain on this really important conversation and discussion around sexual harassment, discrimination and sexual assault in the workplace. So it's obviously... Uh, It can be a heavy conversation and it is really something that we want to explore and and get your input into. And I guess to frame up the scope of the conversation, I think it's important we define what this looks like at work. What is, I guess, sexual harassment at work? Because many of us probably don't know some of those definitions. And so I'm keen for your advice. What is sexual harassment? Great question, Shell, and I think that you're right because a lot of the time we are having conversations about sexual harassment in the media and in our workplaces and in other spaces, and we do perhaps need to go back to basics um, from time to time and regularly um, to remind ourselves all of us need to do that. Otherwise, um, there is that tendency for overwhelm and for the sort of blurring, I suppose, of the conversation um, in a way that's not necessarily helpful. So... We need to be clear about the fact that sexual harassment is unwelcome, it's unwanted behaviour. Now, that's where I'll pause for a moment before I continue to unpack things. The unwelcome and the unwanted is critical because that means that we're not talking about 
the deliciousness of workplace romance that is consensual between two people who have genuine and, you know, healthy appreciation for one another in a way that's great. Um, and, you know, of course, in that context, there might be the need to declare things to HR and there might be all of those bits and pieces associated with a consensual relationship. But that's well and truly outside of the scope of what it is that we're talking about today. So it must be unwelcome and it must be unwanted. Now, it's also, um, according to the Commonwealth Sex Discrimination Act, it's behaviour that is of a sexual nature. Now, that distinguishes things from bullying, for example, because bullying might be um, behaviour that's toxic and humiliating and offensive, but not necessarily of a sexual nature. Bullying may or may not be, but, but sexual harassment requires that it is. Now, there is a lot of um, case law around the interpretation of what a sexual nature looks like. But in general terms, if I could give you some just, you know, introductory examples, we're talking about unwelcome, unwanted comments of a sexualised nature, like, for example, um, commenting on someone's nice butt in the workplace, for example, in a way that is unwelcome and makes that person feel as though they are uncomfortable in their workplace, for example. It might be um, an email with a suggestive sort of undertone that is you know, clearly um, suggestive of something that's outside of the professional realm. It might be the display of pornography in the workplace, um, whether or not that's in a, a car underneath a seat um, tucked in a way that, you know, might um, give rise to some laughing, you know, amongst the person who's placed it there. Um, it could be unwanted sexual touching. I guess what we need to recognise is that there's a spectrum of behaviour that may be categorised as sexual harassment, ranging from the sort of unwanted bearing at one end all the way through to sexual assault at the other. And so you can see there that there are some just basic examples of, of staging along the way. But at the end of the day, we're really talking about a spectrum of things and they can be unique to a workplace. And we can talk about that some more if you'd like to as well. Am I right in understanding that this can just be a one-off? So if somebody has that experience yeah. once then that is still classified as sexual harassment. It doesn't need to be repeated behaviour over time. You're spot on, and That's absolutely critical because in the context of bullying, which is a different mm. law, um, there does need to be a pattern ordinarily um, of unwelcome um, sort of toxic behaviour of that nature. Sexual harassment does not require for that behaviour to be repeated. It, it, a one-off situation may well satisfy the legislative definition. I mean, even as you're explaining that, Sky, I'm thinking, oh, this is complex. Mm. Like the spectrum that you're explaining from un unwelcome, unwanted, maybe suggestive comments mm. to all the way through to sexual assault, how does an individual discern and work out what is it that they're experiencing? Because I think as I'm thinking about I guess my friends or colleagues or what I've seen in the workplace, helping people kind of ascertain what they're experiencing or what they may be seeing for others in their own workplace. How do you help people kind of diagnose what's happening in the first place? You're absolutely right because in the research that I've conducted with women around the country um, about sexual harassment and their experiences, Sometimes we would talk about the sexualised behaviours that were experienced in the workplace, but people would be very quick to say, but I didn't mind, I didn't think that that was offensive, I just knew that that person was doing that because it's the way that it's always been, it's the way that things are done around here, it's all a bit normal in this workplace, et cetera, et cetera. So the interesting thing about that is that we're talking then about a culture that's developed over time and we'll park that thought because that's for a different point in the conversation. But I think that you're right. I think that um, at the end of the day, if we quietly um, reflect on what it is that may or may not be occurring in the workplace, and let's, let's imagine that it is unwanted sexual touching, and, and we reflect on that touching and we know in our, in the, in our core that it is behaviour that is making us feel uncomfortable and 
as though we are other in the workplace, as though we don't belong in that workplace because we are being subject to behaviour that is so grossly unwelcome that it's affecting the fabric of ourself, then that's a really good indicator that it's time to do something with that. And in my understanding, it's not about the intention of the person. So I wonder, Sky, whether you've heard things in the past like, well, I didn't mean it that way or it wasn't my intention to uh, upset that person. Yeah. It actually doesn't matter what your intention is from what I understand. It's more about how it's received and if, to your point, that person considers it unwelcome and unwanted. You're absolutely right again, Em, because it's the mere possibility that conduct could give rise to the humiliation and the offence that we spoke about a moment ago. That possibility is enough to satisfy the Commonwealth legislative definition. So, for example, if we had a group of colleagues um, talking very loudly in an office space about someone's sexual escapades over the weekend, for example, someone's experiences and what they got up to in, in gritty detail and you have someone else sitting nearby um, who is exposed to that conversation, it is the, the mere possibility that that work person who is actually sitting near to this discussion, this unwelcome discussion, um, the mere possibility that they are offended or humiliated by this sexualized conduct may well be enough to satisfy um, the, the legislative definition. So that might be enough. Um, so really it's a... I guess what we've got is a set of rules. We've got the legislation and policy flows on, workplace policy flows on from the legislation um, and that will be designed in a way that ideally is fitting um, to the workplace and its needs. But ultimately you've got this sort of block of rules contained in the law and policy and then we've got case-by-case interpretation of the rules, um, i.e. judicial interpretation. And the way that judges unpack the law is on, you know, as-needs basis, I suppose, and that's where it becomes really interesting. And I know we're going to get into some really, um, I suppose, fascinating questions in a moment about the culture that allows for this um, kind of conduct to occur. But before we do that, we are keen for all of our listeners to know the distinctions between these definitions because we've we've just talked about sexual harassment through to sexual assault. I'm keen, uh, Sky, for you to also unpack the difference between, I guess, sexual harassment and discrimination because they are different mm-hmm. and, and I know that's really um, part of your background as a lawyer and you've been doing special counsel for sex discrimination. That's part of your consulting as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So the interesting thing is that sexual harassment is part of a bigger parcel of fairly deplorable behaviours that actually comprise this overarching banner, which is sex discrimination. So sex discrimination may take different forms, one of which is sexual harassment. Um, It could also, for example, manifest as, let's say, unequal pay for equal work. Um, So anything where a woman is um, regarded as being less valuable than a male counterpart in a job that is of the same substance, um, for example, that may actually fall under the banner of the Sex Discrimination Act. Um, Anything where a woman is subject to different conditions to male counterparts in the similar circumstances, similar jobs, anything, for example, that might place a pregnant person at a disadvantage on account of the fact that she's a woman and she's pregnant and therefore needs has different needs in the um, bigger workplace context. Breastfeeding also comes into that as well. So where there are challenges around having a a safe and clean and private space um, to look after, you know, breastfeeding a baby um, and associated pumping and so forth, that can also fall under the the bigger overarching heading of sex discrimination. So there are all sorts of different um, components and sexual harassment is one. And let's look at our current context because the reason I suppose we we reached out to you to have this discussion is we're seeing so much come up in our political landscape in terms of sexual harassment, sexual assault. And the concerning thing with that is that they are our... They're the highest level of leadership in the country. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess I've been doing a lot of watching and reading and I'm certainly no expert, but I just sit there, I think, with my jaw on the floor and I'm going, wow, if there is truth to the culture that exists in Parliament, then you know what are the possibilities in regards to how that influences workplaces throughout the whole country? And is the what we we're seeing of uh, the cases of sexual harassment coming to light in our political landscape and in Parliament? Does that then transfer and mean that's the norm? across a lot of organisations and you would have a lot of experience in this space. So I'm keen to know from your perspective, is is this widespread? Well, I think what is at the heart of the problem, and I do believe that we have a cultural problem in the context of sexual harassment. Now, the reason why I say that is because we do have good law on the books and our sex discrimination law is relatively sound and there is room for improvement. We've heard recently that there will be um, a suite of amendments that will be made to strengthen that law even further. But the interesting thing is we need to apply the law um, and it is good law, as I said, um, in a way that translates to people on the ground. Now, In a lot of the workplaces that we um, find around Australia, um, we are still labouring under old traditional models of male dominance as the norm. And what that means is that cultures have developed which sort of regard um, particular domains. For example, let's just do a a quick sweep of some of the traditionally male-dominated spaces. Um, Yeah, parliament, um, policing, mining, um, agriculture, oh, you know, the you know, list goes on and on. Um, we could say, for example... Manufacturing. <laughs> yeah, manu- manufacturing. The defence industry. Defence, absolutely. Um, look, they are examples of male-dominant uh, or traditionally male-dominated workplaces. So in common, um, that means that women have traditionally been regarded as other as outsiders who come in from time to time. And this is traditionally the case. Things are, things are definitely moving on. Um, but we do need to, to recognise that there are these historical traditions that have really saturated these spaces for generations. And so what we tend to see, and of course, you know, a lot of the research that I've done over time has actually been looking at rurality and looking at people who work in rural contexts and how those traditionally male spaces have actually given rise to cultural sort of, you know, stuckness where the old way of regarding the bush as no place for a woman, um, you know, and the woman's place is in the home and all of those bits and pieces and those generational attitudes um, traditionally have served to cast women out. So I think that what we're seeing is um, the product of a lot of old thinking and we do need to draw the line and we do need to look at what is in our control moving forward and what is outside of our control moving forward. And, of course, all of this stuck attitudes and the stereotypical behaviours of the past um, that have, you know, really created a sense of women do this and men do that and they're very different roles that we play, all of the, the stuff that's become a bit stuck and needs to move on, we can't... We can't change in the context of what's happened previously. But what we do have in our control is drawing that line and doing things deliberately and differently and consciously moving forward. And that is, I think, where it's important that we're having conversations like this one today because we need to look at, okay, so we've got a a situation where we're moving out of the old and into the new. What does the new look like and how? what what is in our control here? What would you say it is that, gets in the way of both men and women in the workplace actually raising their hand or or saying something, whether it be a concern or a complaint. Hmm. Have you seen that there's maybe commonality between men men and women or differences in what brings that forward? Yeah, so I think that... A lot of the the stuff that I've worked on has actually been centred ultimately on exactly what you've just described, Em, understanding different perspectives on the topic So for me, in a typical workplace, you have three stakeholder groups in the context of the sexual harassment discussion. You've got men, and quite typically, not always, but typically we see sexual harassment as a behaviour that plays out 
um, by men to women. It's something, and that actually harks back to those old stereotypical attitudes around this is male domain, this is male space, we've got women coming into our space and they can fit in accordingly. So that's, you know, but typically males will be one stakeholder group. Females will be a separate stakeholder group and they have their own perspective on the sexual harassment issue and I'll talk about that in a moment as well. And the third stakeholder group that we probably need to be mindful of is the group that have the duty of care owed to men and women alike in the workplace and that is the group that's you know the directors the leaders the managers the bosses that that group where the overarching responsibility sits it's really interesting because what we commonly see is that at the end of the day sexual harassment is incredibly normalized where where cultures become stuck they become stuck in a way that means that the norm is a particular form of behaviour, which often features sexual harassment as a tool for casting women as other, for casting women as, for reminding women of their place. Can I just jump in? You've used that term other and I really, I'd love to kind of unpack. So where you say, is that just how someone feels that they're on the outer or where does that kind of term or expression come from? You know that um, movie, is it Mean Girls, where they say, you know, you don't go here or she doesn't go here. You know, that that sense of, you know, you you are here, physically here, and yes, you've managed to obtain a position here, but that doesn't mean that you belong. That doesn't mean that you're not one of us. You're not one of us. Mm. Exactly. And Things are changing over time. For example, um, we have come such a long way in the context of the way that, for example, women in the army um, experience being included and and valued, that we've come a very long way. There's still a lot of room to to go. Um, Women in agriculture, similarly, um, are really experiencing a whole lot of newfound respect um, that is just, you know, I, I hope still developing a lot of momentum. But... Um, traditionally, this is what I'm speaking to, that sense of other has been incredibly problematic and incredibly painful. Um, Statistically, um, for example, in the national research that I conducted, 73% of the women with whom I spoke indicated that sexual harassment was something that they encountered on a regular basis in the workplace. Wow. Um, And that's really consistent with some of those national figures as well that um, the Human Rights Commission has um, uncovered as well. So it is problematic. And before I unpack those perspectives, um, I guess the other thing to say is what are we talking about um, that might be different in really heavily male-dominated spaces? What is that experience like that might be different to an office space, for example? And it was interesting because some of the women had some incredibly unique stories that they talked about. For example, one woman spoke about um, her work on a large cattle station where in the daytime um, she would be in the yards and she would be working with a lot of contractors. So she didn't necessarily know these contractors very well um, because they were quite frequently there on short-term three or four-month stints. And when she was working, you know, alongside them, she would literally um, hear over and over again um, sizing up of cattle teats compared to her breast, for example, or her breasts. So these people who she didn't know well but whom she had to work alongside with whom, you know, it's um, that sort of thing that for me that going back to our definition, humiliating, unwanted, unwelcome, tick, 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 because it made her feel incredibly uncomfortable. And fascinating, that example, like it's so concerning that that was her experience, but also interesting that people coming in and out of that environment had a similar like I'm just interested by that because if you have having- power of culture, well, yeah, mm. you people moving in and out every three months, did you say? And, and so, yet the behaviour that she experienced over time was the same. So it tells you that it's it's not necessarily always just like one person mm. as a perpetrator. That if a culture allows and mm. fosters a certain behaviour, then it spreads. And it's yeah. been normalised. You used that word normal before. That that's just normal in that environment. 
This is right. And the, the thing is that for the employer stakeholder group, the, the people with the duty of care, the managers of these stations, um, one of the things that sort of is a reality is that if bad behaviour is happening on the ground, quite often the, the contract is so short anyway that, you know, you've got a new wave of people coming in and you don't actually even have the time. Um, some, some people told me in the course of the interviews to actually even deal with what is happening on a, on a day-to-day basis in a meaningful way because of, of the very sort of nature of the structure there. So it's, um, there are all sorts of complexities that come into play here. Okay, let's talk about these perspectives, if that's okay, Sky. the different perspectives. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So for all, sexual harassment was so normalised that for, and let's start with men, for men, it goes largely underestimated. Now, the research that I conducted and consistent with other research that's been conducted is such that there are so many unknown unknowns in the context of what is acceptable now and how is that different to what was acceptable and demonstrated to me by my father, my uncle, my grandfather, my neighbours, everyone who I've ever known growing up. And quite frequently, if you've got, for example, um, men who have sort of followed in the footsteps, for example, you know, on the land or um, going into similar occupational types that have been modelled to them over time, the way that things have changed today as compared to what was acceptable in the 80s or the 90s or even 2000s even, um, you know, that that's remarkably different. And so all of a sudden you've almost got a, a, a tussle within oneself where you're realising that some of the things that perhaps have already happened, um, and I'm not making excuses for this, but I'm just sort of providing a perspective and an insight, there is there is an element of shame sometimes for the things that have already happened. That, and we can't control things that have already happened. We can only control what happens here on and forevermore. But I do find that the big elephant in the room is how do I set myself new standards of what is acceptable and normal? Um, how is it that that is different to what I've seen loved ones even in the past model for me and how can I reconcile that in my own self um, in a way that's integrated as a a really good man because often what we we find is that we've got really good men who don't mean often and I'm sure of this having spoken I'm doing a piece at the moment called Boys from the Bush where I'm really trying to unpack and understand perspectives often for example there is a tendency for people to want to show other men in the workplace that, you know, that they're performing masculinity to the standard that was once expected. And when a, a person might come in who's female, for example, um, there might she might become part of that performance. Now, what that means is she might become um, someone who there is an expression of um, masculinity, manliness, to, and I'm not making any excuses about this, but, for example, they might say, um, oh, look at the tits on her, for example, and the the other men then have evidence that this is a, a display of blokiness in accordance with all of the traditions and patterns that we've seen over the past, and there's not necessarily a sense of having harmed. There's not necessarily always a sense of at least having intended to harm. Um, And that's the part where later on we'll talk about the head and the heart and how we really do need to be resetting the channels um, on both levels in order for us to have a a way forward out of this cultural dilemma that we face. Um, So Blake's perspective, to summarise, is that quite frequently the unknown unknowns is a real thing because we are asking for significant change because in the past it's been accepted, these patterns have been often accepted as normal. So unknown unknowns, but also this sense of, oh, I didn't ever mean to be a bad person or a bad bloke. I think I have been, and I don't know what to do with that now. So that that shame piece is probably um, a, a big one that we need some some focus on in a, in a fairly sensitive and concentrated way. I think it really does need to be a, a conversation that's um, not about blame, not about shame. It's forward-looking. It's accepting the past and it's looking into the future. Um, So that's that bit. 
for women, sexual harassment has become so normalised that it does tend to go underreported. And you've heard me talking about this cultural dilemma, which is fed by old-fashioned stereotypes, fed by, for example, advertisements on TV where we've seen all the blokes gather for a hard-earned thirst and we, we don't ever see the, the women invited along because women don't get to do that even though they probably work shoulder to shoulder. But in, in our national narrative, quite honestly, it's always um, unusual to see a woman in that space in the beer ads where she's, you know, enjoying that too. So what we do tend to see is for women, sexual harassment is so normalised that it's underreported and the reasons for that are largely um, consistent across the research. So not being deemed a troublemaker, not being deemed a liar, wanting to protect one's home and children from repercussions, not wanting to lose financial security, particularly in some places where jobs, particularly post-COVID, for example, are perhaps all the more precious. Uh, There are loads and loads of reasons why women would say things like, yeah, it really does hurt, but at the end of the day, I don't want to create a storm in a teacup or I don't want to rock the boat um, or I would rather just fit in. Um, because the alternative is to F off, you know, and that that last one I heard time and time and time again. So modifying one's own behaviour in order to fit in with the, the culture, that's where that becomes problematic. Sky, this conversation is so good already and we could just keep rolling through, but we're going to take a break and at the back end of this conversation, we're going to be talking about what you can do if you have experienced sexual harassment either directly or indirectly and some strategies for resolution. Money, property, careers, health, small business. We love learning how to do all of these well so we can live our best life. That's why we've made podcasts focus on a variety of topics. Check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, Gen Z Money, and You To Me, You To You, You To Us, which is just about sexual and reproductive health. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's so many barriers for women and reasons why they they underreport, as you you mentioned. If 73% of women in your research uh, experienced sexual harassment, but the level of reporting would be so low, I'm just keen to really dig in there for a moment. And one of the, um, one of my good friends, she's a doctor and she had a, I guess her, one of the senior doctors in the practice was known to sexually harass a lot of the staff in that practice, but it was just accepted. And when she was sharing her story with me and there was inappropriate touching, so he would put his hand on her leg and stuff and, and things that were very unwelcome, unwanted. But when I was listening back to her tell her story, it was almost like she just tried to downplay it. Mm. But you know, I mean, it's just not like that's what he does and, and he's been there forever and no one no one says and everyone's just like, oh, yeah, that's just him. Mm-hmm. And I'm keen for, to know from your perspective, what does someone do when they're in that scenario? Like there's just so many barriers to her reporting it. It is so true and I can think of two of my very favourite 
authors, um, Tara Moss and Laura Bates, and they have both written beautifully articulate statements about this very thing, about the tolerance of sexual harassment, which effectively, in a nutshell, um, is a little bit, sometimes we become a bit like the frog in the boiling pot, where we, by default, do tend to turn a blind eye um, to sexual harassment for the reasons that we just spoke about a moment ago, fear of job loss and gossip and all of the things. And little by little, the cultural allowance and the acceptability of what's normal and what's normal just starts to simmer and simmer and boil and boil and boil. And before we know it, um, the lines have become so blurred and we're, we're simmering away in something that's quite toxic. But we've sort of lost the ability to work out where that line of acceptability actually was in the first place. Um, English author Laura Bates talked about this and she said that what this feels like when sexual harassment becomes this way is like reams and reams of tiny pinpricks so normalised that to call each one would seem facetious. And that's effectively it you know it's a real trap and I think Tara Moss said um, that the feeling that something is wrong rarely comes in a single blazing moment like a lightning strike but rather accumulates drip by drip by drip so the pinpricks the that sense of you know tiny little stabs in that sense of dripping tap um, really um, I think it captures in a very similar way um, just that slow build towards feeling like you're out of out of your depth and, and you're really suffering and you don't know then at that point where okay where the lines of okay actually were in the first place and that's that's I think something that many many women have perhaps encountered. It's made all the more challenging when uh, using Shelley's story as an example that perpetrator is in the position of power. So they're that more senior doctor. It's perhaps their practice. The final lens which we should talk about is the the group of people who have that duty of care. And so they are the managers. Can you tell us about their perspective? Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, sexual harassment is so normalised in some workplace cultures and has become that way over time that it goes completely unopposed. So we've got if you hark back, you've got men underestimating sexual harassment and its harm. You've got women underreporting because of the way that the culture's developed. And feeding all of that is, you know, this um, sense of seeing some form of problem commonly, but not quite knowing how to fix it because it's so culturally entrenched that it, you know, that, that blurriness around the female experience that we were speaking to a moment ago um, is also equally blurry for the people in charge. And it was common when I did my um, my interviews around the country to hear people who were um, workplace leaders talking to the fact that there is so much that needs to be achieved between the working hours and particularly in, in some very male-dominated workplaces, the sun is actually a really critical part of a working day. So between sunrise and sunset, you've, got, you've only got so much time. And people would frequently say things to me like, you know, yeah, it's a, it is a problem and it probably is a problem. I've probably heard whispers about it being a problem on the ground. But quite frankly, there's so much for us to do in this short working day that this is not a top priority. So people just need to roll up their sleeves, stop being sensitive in the way that they obviously are and just get on with things. And in fact, 83% of the employers with whom I chatted, um, and when I say chatted, I spoke to them um, over the duration of two or three hours at a time. So these were in-depth chats. Um, they would often say, you know, that they just wished that people would just get on with things. Now, the problem there is that getting on with things takes us back to that space where you've got the dripping tap and you've got the pinpricks and you've got the underestimating of the problem that's causing the pinpricks over here with the men and then you've, you've sort of got this three-way cord that is actually um, striking its own self um, as opposed to playing in harmony. So what we need to do is to actually find the place where the cord 
harmonizers. And that means that all three of those stakeholder groups need to um, work actively, need to play an active role in order to um, unstick the problem, if I can put it that way. That's so helpful to hear and and that the three groups need to together play that active role to bring about change. And in this conversation, many of our listeners will be, well, we do have a high volume of women who listen. And so they're probably in that group. Maybe they're not responsible, they're not HR, they're not the manager, but what would you say for that group that uh, maybe are experiencing sexual harassment or they're seeing it happen to a colleague or co-worker, what can they do to, to I suppose, bring about the change that we're wanting to see? Okay, so for the person who is experiencing sexual harassment, okay, so it's a very human experience. Um, it's a human experience because it hurts and it humiliates. And it's, at the end of the day, a human experience because it's being perpetrated by another person. So I think the first thing is to really um, sit with that feeling, whatever it is, and to not self-flagellate for feeling um, anything that's related to pain or hurt or humiliation. It's a natural thing. And we need to actually become comfortable with the fact that it is okay, particularly in a workplace context, to feel as though we, we, you know, are are being treated at a level that's lower than uh, the standard that you might expect as an individual and to give voice to that and to have intrinsic values around your standard that you anticipate that you are worthy of and anything less than um, is is not okay. And, And I feel like being able to, I guess, at first accept the fact that the pain is there and then decide, decide to act, decide to do something with that is the next part. Now, we've got a couple of things that are available to us in the context of doing something with that pain. Some of them are really simple strategies, and we'll start with those. So in the event that um, this very human problem occurs again, um, the first thing, for example, if someone says uh, a comment about someone's breasts, let's just call it that, the first thing that might be possible is to to pause quite deliberately and to turn and to face the person who's made the comment and to look quite deliberately at the person who's made the comment and to ask them just very calmly, you know, what was that that you said? Sorry, I didn't hear that. And to just pause and to wait. And in the event that the person then repeats the, the comment um, to say very clearly, I want you to understand that that comment is unwelcome and it has actually hurt me and to give them an opportunity to sit with that, to sit with their vulnerability, not your vulnerability as a person who's experienced it because you're strong in that moment because you have actually drawn a line and you have actually transferred the power. Sexual harassment is about power. You've transferred the power back onto the perpetrator in that moment. And that's a really, really profound moment for the person who's experienced it because it doesn't involve even in that moment bringing in external people to help you reclaim that power. You've got it. You wait. If there's awkward shuffling um, and any attempt at justifying the comment, repeat. Say, I I do want you to know and please understand that this has hurt me and I, I would welcome an apology. And Take your time to reflect on that, absolutely, but I would welcome an apology. Now, if that apology comes, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And if you can if you can then trust and say to that person that I now trust that that won't happen again, your power is restored as an individual person, as a strong and worthy person in the workplace. And that's great. Now, it's not going to work every single time and then we can talk about other mechanisms Um, that might be called upon if that's. I would never, I love hearing you share that example because I would never think to do that in the moment. Like it's so powerful. Something that was coming to mind for me as I was listening, uh, I know I've heard before that if you experience something well, you then need to look at what is the workplace policy and, and you know, what's what do you do about making a complaint or going through a grievance process? And I think there's a, 
raft of reasons why that becomes quite daunting and, and feels like it would perhaps make your life harder. But I also really like this idea of if you can deal with it in the moment and you can deal with it on that human level, person to person, that is where we create culture change. Because unfortunately, just having policies in the workplace is not enough. Mm. Oh, let's think about all the policies that Parliament would have had to mitigate sexual harassment. Now, a policy doesn't change a behaviour. Well, it doesn't go to the core of a person, whereas in this example that you've just provided a Sky, you're, you're right, people have to sit in their vulnerability, they have to sit in the awkwardness and in that moment feel a sense of, hopefully, sting or self-reflection and I think that's more likely to stay with them and, and potentially change their behaviour in the future. That's right and... As I said, it won't work every time. Sometimes, um, my mum used to say to me, you can't throw pearls before swine. And sometimes um, throwing pearls um, in that context, if, if those pearls are going to be received in a really sort of, you know, toxic way, that's not going to be the solution. But you've tried and you've provided that person with that opportunity. So then, as you say, and there are um, a suite of other I guess, more concrete mechanisms. We've got policy, we've got law, right? So workplace policy is an interesting one because I did hear a number of women say to me that policy is a gift in the context of sexual harassment. And I found that really interesting. And they would say to me, look, out there when you're in, let's say, a mining context, for example, in the event that my boots were urinated on, which some women were experiencing as a practical example of the, the sort of thing that, um, that women were telling me about, you can't point to that behaviour, they would say, and say, your behaviour has hurt me. They, they felt that that was, and that's interesting because that, that's exactly what I've just described as something that for me would be the transfer of power. But, but for some people, um, the transfer of power represents a feeling of weakness um, because it's it, sometimes vulnerability um, can be confused for weakness even within oneself. And there, there is that, that sort of, I guess, complexity that we do need to recognise. So they would then say that I didn't want to actually say your behaviour has hurt me. So instead I would say your behaviour has breached the rules. Here are the rules and in accordance with our workplace function and expectation, I now require you to apologise and in the alternative I will progress this according to the policy. So it's, I guess it's different strategies for different people. That's that's okay too because we're not always, um, you know, cookie cutters in the context of the way that we respond to things and that's great. So for me it would actually be possible and quite helpful um, to have that conversation at first instance. But for someone else, it might be better to point to the, the policy and to lean on that. And different strategies for different people and different strategies for different organisations. So how much, I guess, are you seeing there is a difference based on the type of harassment that might be experienced in one organisation versus another or rurally versus metropolitan? Okay, so I did hear about a number of very specifically rural examples of sexual harassment that you wouldn't necessarily see playing out in a metropolitan sort of context, just by virtue of the fact that the workplaces are quite unique and different um, frequently in the bush. So, for example, um, I heard from a person who was working on a, a large cattle station and was required in the course of that work to transfer cattle from one place to another um, overnight on a stock route. And she was working with a number of blokes, um, again, many of whom she hadn't known very well um, because they were sort of contract workers coming in for a, a very specific period of time. And what actually happened was she... Over the course of the day, sort of, you know, she was sort of listening to a lot of banter and a lot of sexualised jokes and so forth, and she had developed a sort of relative tolerance, I suppose, for some of that. But that night she lay out her swag and nearby um, to where she was camping, um, the guys rolled out their swags in a cluster and had a portable DVD player that they then proceeded to play a pornographic 
movie, an explicitly pornographic movie on. It was an X-rated movie. And she lay there um, and apparently her thinking was, to what extent am I safe tonight when I go to sleep? To what extent can I trust that this incident, which is already humiliating because I don't want to be lying here listening to these sexual sounds um, and hearing the laughter and the comments accordingly, but to what extent is that going to actually transition um, into something that's really, really frightening and the worst form of um, sexual and so for her, um, what compounded that problem was the fact that the person in charge was also there gathered around the DVD player. And so she had no one to go to. Um, she had no recourse. She had no sense of what do I do with this experience? And so she tucked it away as part of her life experience and she chose not to do anything with that. And you can see um, why that would have been a very difficult place for her um, to, to navigate. And in reality, um, if I think about it, you know, through a, a lawyerly lens for a moment, uh, the only thing that I would advise someone in those shoes in, in a similar position would be that in the event that the person in charge is part of the problem and is not available to you for, you know, um, disclosure in the way that um, we're all entitled to, the Australian Human Rights Commission is there to receive confidential complaints that can be conciliated and will be conciliated privately. There are all sorts of um, realities around that very thing. For example, to make a complaint to the Human Rights Commission or the state or territory counterpart, and there are counterparts, um, means that you are effectively at some point um, going to be known by your employer as having made a complaint because there's no way around that. Now, for some women, they say, well, that's okay because I'm moving on into a different job anyway and I want my former workplace to become accountable for what actually happened to me in that space and that's very good. But for other women, they then have to lean hard on the protections of law and there is a protection that we all have which is um, protection against victimisation for making a complaint and that is illegal and that is unlawful in itself but we do need to then lean hard on the law as it is in order to actually progress something practically particularly in a complex situation like that one. And so do you see that there's because these examples are just they're so powerful in allowing us particularly where maybe we have been fortunate enough not to experience directly or indirectly any sexual harassment they're so powerful in allowing us to feel that sense of reality that example was very rural specific do you see that there is an equivalent in an organization that perhaps is more corporate or, or is in a metropolitan or a city hmm. environment yeah because I, I i mean if i just hark back to my own profession there's um and i'm a, a lawyer and have practiced law and have you know also worked as an academic but um and do work as an academic both but in law we have a, a, a very similar situation where we have a male dominant um, sort of profession traditionally. Um, it's changing now. In fact, more than 50% of graduates in law now are women. Uh, that's not to say that the 50% of graduates um, that are women are necessarily in the senior positions of power yet, but um, I say yet quite deliberately because I'm, I'm hopeful that that wave will come through too. We just, at the end of the day, we, we um, do see that where there is um, a male dominant culture as a norm that has been entrenched over time and over the generations and enforced by traditional Australian stereotypes um, through the media and through pop culture and, you know, even through some of the things that we hold really dear, like, for example, you know, um, the man from Snowy River and the Crocodile Dundee and all of the things that have actually shaped the way that we do Australia, those things have often, you know, had the effect of, you know, enforcing women as other in particular spaces. And that's what we're doing at the moment. We're actually just moving. We're unsticking that culture, conversation by conversation. But you can see that at the end of the day, it's, it's such a, a human discussion about what's in our control now and what's not in our control, i.e. the history and the things that have shaped us to this point. And what's in our control now is hearts and minds at the end of the day. Um, it's the educational piece, the mind piece. It's the part where we actually do get 
clear about what our laws mean in the way that we have in this discussion today. We've talked about the definition of sexual harassment and how that's different to bullying and how we can be sure that we're actually experiencing sexual harassment because it might feel a particular way and what we can do practically and how we can lean on the law and all of those different um, mechanisms. So that's the headpiece. But the heart piece is that bit where we really do um, all play a role in listening to one another's perspective, men, women, employers, and understanding that the roles that we play are unique and that it's really time for us to get clear about that harmony um, in the workplace. What is something, if I have, say, a colleague or a friend come to me and they've had an experience, I wasn't there to witness it, but they bring that to me in confidence, what would you recommend I do or say in that situation? Well, if they've asked you to hold that close to your heart in confidence, um, my feeling is that unless it was something that was, you know, very, very extreme and unlawful, um, my feeling is that I would probably honour the desire for confidentiality, but I would probably mentor my friend and my colleague um, towards some of the strategies for empowerment that we've been talking about. And sometimes, as we said, it's fantastic to be able um, to feel as though you can have a conversation with the person who's perpetrating the harassment, but other times supporting someone um, as they make a complaint, for example, to the Human Rights Commission, that's an external complaint to the workplace, but um, does require a lot of really um, intensive support for that person. That's perhaps one of the most practical ways, just being there for that person throughout that relatively daunting process and let's face it it is because it does require saying I have experienced this behavior it has made me feel these things unwanted unwelcome humiliated offended all of the things um, I, I don't wish for this to happen anymore here are the facts now that the setting out of the facts and the setting out of the dates and the times and the giving of all that information um, does leave you at the end of the day when you hit enter submit the complaint, it does leave you with a sense of what next because it's an unknown space for all of us. Not many people have submitted and gone through that process of making a complaint to the Human Rights Commission, for example. So the unknown unknowns, sometimes the best thing that a, a practical friend can do is to, to listen to the unknown unknowns and to help them work out what the next steps are and to help them to work out how to have conversations with people in the workplace in the meantime if indeed they are still working in that workplace and to remind them that the law's on their side and to remind them that what they're doing is courageous and brave and important not just for them but for for everyone including the person who's perhaps been perpetrating that's so helpful to hear how we can go about supporting friends colleagues if they're uh, experiencing sexual harassment at work for the individual, uh, as I hear you talk through these scenarios, there would be a lot of fear mm. in in making a complaint. I, I suppose that's the big barrier. It's either being normalised and there's a culture or the per individual, uh, there's naturally a fear around making a complaint. How do you counteract that? Because you, you mentioned courage before. How can an individual build up the courage to say, um, even a step back from the Human Rights Commission, but go to HR mm. and make that complaint internally or uh, what are the things that you, you would be encouraging individuals to do to build their courage? I think that it's really interesting. Um, I think Em just nailed um, one important element, which is to have a really um, close ally, to have a support person who is a confidential support person who you feel as though you're able to share with and share confidentially and honestly with. I think that that's um, part of um, providing yourself with that safety net for your own emotional processes because that's part of, you know, this whole thing. It's your own process. It, it's not a linear process for any of us. Um, and, of course, the way that we decide to progress a complaint um, as we've said, it, it may be that we speak with the perpetrator, it might be we do something internally with policy, or it might be that we take things outside to the Human Rights Commission. All of those aspects will, will actually play to those unknown unknowns. I did a piece of research recently where I was interested in hearing from, and I did interview 
women who were in the spotlight in Australia because their sex discrimination complaints had actually hit the media. And I wanted to understand through that group of women, that cohort of women, three things. What was the pivotal moment that was such that you decided to make the complaint? And some of those women had actually made a complaint external to the workplace and some of those women had actually made a complaint within their own workplace, but it had leaked. And so there were incredible um, painful experiences associated with the leakage of one's confidential complaint, which takes a lot of courage to make in the first place. Then I wanted to understand what that process was like for them. What were the unknown unknowns? What was when you made a complaint, for example, to the Human Rights Commission or when you filed in court, um, who did you have by your side? Who was your support person legally? Who was your who was your rock? Who was the person who um, or who demystified the process for you? And how important was that along the way? And ultimately, was it worth it? And I think that the the was it worth it piece is a really important part of the the puzzle. And the reason for that is because um, some women um, really ultimately had a much bigger picture in their mind of not only their own resolution of the complaint, but resolution for future generations at heart. And so I think that the, the, for many people, their perspective is such that they see the, the minor, that they see the minutia of what it is that they've encountered in a workplace context, but they actually see the, the broader Australian picture uh, as well and even global picture as well. Um, so that was really interesting and, and incredibly authentic and, yeah, um, amazing to hear those perspectives. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I tend to be the one that needs to wrap us up because otherwise I know we'll sit here for hours and hours uh, continuing to ask you questions. So in closing, Sky, can you share with us where the average employee turning up for work every day, we've got friends and family members who do the same. We've got some awareness that this is an important topic, but not necessarily any specific encounters in our life so far. What parting words would you leave us with or what is it important for us to know in order to help change culture around sexual harassment? I think at the end of the day, um, it, it really does boil down to the need for us to transform um, the discord of these three stakeholder lenses into something harmonious. And we can that is what cultural change requires. Um, and we all have a role to play in transforming the discord into harmony. And for me, um, I think that educating our hearts and minds towards something that is in our control, i.e. the future of, of this nation and the future of our place as valued contributors to this nation. I think that for me that's that's the passion piece. That's that's where I really want us to all feel excited and, and energised and optimistic about. Optimistic, I like that word. I'm pleased to be ending on that. And we're, we just want to say thank you, Sky, for your time. It's an absolute privilege for us to sit and have this really important conversation today with you. And I know you've got a very busy schedule. And so we really appreciate your time. Before we close out, Sky, if any of our listeners want to uh, find out more about you, where can they get in touch with you? Or even your research, perhaps, as well. Absolutely. So um, we could perhaps put a link um, up for that. But my website is skysaunders.com.au. And you can also just do a little Google of Sky Saunders um, sexual harassment, and that will give you a couple of um, alternative links. And I'll, I'll provide some to you, Shell and Em, as well. Great. And we'll get those in the show notes so you can find out more about Sky. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would love if you can give us five-star rating and review. That helps us to get the podcast out there and subscribe. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you again so much, Sky. It's been uh, one of my favourite conversations to date. I knew I would learn a lot and I certainly have. So I, I won't be the only one and we just really appreciate you being so generous with your time and expertise. Oh, Em, thank you. And thank you, Shell. It's been my joy. Our pleasure. See ya. We acknowledge the dark and young people, 
traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Money, property, careers, health, small business. We love learning how to do all of these well so we can live our best life. That's why we've made podcasts focus on a variety of topics. Check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, Gen Z Money, and You To Me, You To You, You To Us, which is just about sexual and reproductive health. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 